As an alumnus and continued supporter of EMU, I'm happy to be able to introduce Lauren Schwarzenegger this morning. Lauren and I actually started our journeys at EMU together in 2004. He as president, uh, me as a wide-eyed freshman, ready for new adventures and away, away from my mom and dad. So when he hired my dad in 2005, I questioned his commitment to my student experience. <laughs> but I quickly got over that as I had more interactions with him as well as seeing my dad truly love his job and new work environment. I've appreciated Lauren's commitment to Mennonite education and his leadership in the wider Mennonite church as both a student and an alum. As a student, it was common to see him having lunch in the Royal's Den or a front row at a basketball game, always engaging in conversation with whoever crossed his path. Lauren creates a welcoming environment wherever he goes. I mean, at what other university is it common to address the president by his first name? Lauren, we look forward to hearing what you have to say and share with us today. Thank you. Thank you. That was very gracious. Could have been much worse. <laughs> Early on, when I was still in the honeymoon period, which I think lasted about two months back in 2004, um, I was introduced at another congregation in this area by a student, then student, and she said something like, he came from Heston College and we got him while he was still hot. So I'm thinking, how do you respond to that? I mean, I, I have no idea what she even meant. I assumed it was because I was recent, uh, reasonably younger. Um, and so, but I couldn't let it pass. So I just sort of rhetorically asked, so I don't know what that means, but I'm sort of eager to find out. And then I heard this laughter out in the congregation, but I didn't realize what was going on. Well, it turns out that there was a, an older gentleman in the congregation who took that statement very literally. And his response, which a bunch of people around him heard, was, oh, he's going to be hot for at least another week. That's the forecast. <laughs> So I finally figured out what that meant. I'd like to begin this morning by bringing some greetings from EMU, and here's what we do. We, when I'm headed to a congregation, we send a note out via email, typically early in the week, saying I'm going to be in a certain congregation. And if there are people at EMU who would like to send greetings to their friends or relatives back in the congregation, uh, they're free to do that. Uh, it doesn't go to students, it just goes to faculty and staff. Invariably, I get back on campus and then I find out that someone in the congregation had a dear friend at EMU who did not respond. So I need to just tell you, first of all, it's not my fault if they didn't respond. It's between you and them. You're going to have to work that out. But I did get some good responses. Uh, Jason Good sent greetings to uh, Merle and Phyllis. Are they here? This is the other thing. I some, oh, okay. I, I, I like to report that people are here. Um, 
And then, of course, David King actually sent greetings. Uh, and, and I have to say, uh, I've made what I consider to be many, many good hires at EMU. I've always, one of my maxims of leadership is don't be afraid to hire people smarter than yourself. Now, as time goes on, there have been a few people who, when they get to know me, then say, well, maybe you ought to set the bar just a little higher. Um, <laughs> but I really believe that. And, and I, among many good hires, Dave has been one of the best. Um, it, it's great to have an athletic director who gets it, who's on the same page in terms of fit, who has a vision for the right place for athletics within a larger university setting. Uh, and that's not an easy task these days, for sure. But as you know, uh, he cares a lot about that, and he thinks about those issues, and he helps other people to think about that. But he did send uh, greetings. Uh, then I got this interesting note from Stuart Showalter. Um, and basically, in large part, it's greetings to the Knoll family. And then he tries to explain this relationship. Um, Kenneth, he refers to Kenneth's death, and, and I talked to Herb about that this morning. I wished that we could have been here uh, for that memorial service. Um, and obviously, you know, Herb was... Uh, where is Herb? I see They're way back there. Uh, was a member of our board for some years. Uh, Herman Bontrager is a current board member. And, uh, and then Stewart says, Kenneth Knoll was Shirley's uncle by marriage. That is, he was married to Shirley's dad's sister, Lois Hershey Knoll. And then he says, pretty convoluted, but I'm sure Lauren will have a way to see the humor in this info. Well, I... I mean, I, there's no humor there. I mean, it's just too convoluted. But I, I think I get the relationship. Uh, special greetings to Daryl and Marlissa Yoder-Bontrager from the Zook Barges. That'd be Elaine Zook Barge. And uh, then Holly Scott. Now, this one took me off guard a little bit because I don't even know Holly. Uh, I mean, I'm sure I've met her. But she's on a one-year assignment in our history department filling in for Mark Metzler-Sowen. Uh, but he, uh, she, Holly, said, please convey greetings to East Chestnut Street, where my husband Reuben and I attended in 2006 to 8. Remember our church experiences there fondly. Always look forward to a chance to visit whenever we are in town. And then Glenn Roth sent greetings to himself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He, he got the email. <laughs> Talks about how great he is. No, no. <laughs> we really appreciate your work for us in the Lancaster Center. Uh, and then Jim Smooker uh, sent greetings to his niece and great-niece, Laura Kanegi and Eliona. Do I have that pronunciation correct? Kanegi Hoover. Are you here this morning? Oh, way back. Okay. All right. Well, he said I need to acknowledge the younger great-niece in particular because she's a potential student. <laughs> now, you know, I mean, Jim Smucker, you know, so also a really good hire recently for us who's heading up our uh, graduate programs and uh, professional uh, studies programs. So... 
and we are just very grateful for his entrepreneurial spirit and energy that he's brought to those programs. Okay, now you get it apparently, so I don't have to, maybe don't have to say this, but my wife often uh, reminds me that people who don't know me very well uh, might miss uh, when I say something that I thought was humorous, if I don't smile, they, they don't get it uh, because I, apparently I don't smile that much. So sometimes in congregational settings, I just start by saying, if I thought it was humorous and you, and you don't get it, I'll just go, and then, then you'll get it. So. But apparently you have a good sense of humor, which is wonderful because that's why I start conversations with congregations sort of on the humorous side. One of my other maxims for leadership is I believe this very strongly. If we in organizations or congregations cannot laugh together, we will not be able to cry together. Those emotions are very, very close together. And I'm grateful to have come from a family that can laugh together, but we can cry together very easily. And I believe that that's part of what makes a cohesive community. And if I were back in congregational leadership, I would spend a lot of time trying to create that kind of an environment so that when the tragedies happen that we can actually cry together. And I know I'm absolutely certain you can do that because of how you've already responded. Now, I'd like to begin the sermon with perhaps an unconventional approach to offer a few vignettes or data points that might initially seem disconnected, and maybe they are, but I trust that they might be coherent in a few minutes. So, vignette number one. About 18 years ago, I shared a chapel presentation at Heston College, which I entitled, This I Believe. And the primary thesis of that message was that as I have aged and hopefully matured, <laughs> two things have happened to me along that life's journey simultaneously and particularly in my faith journey on the one hand there are some beliefs which I hold more closely and deeply than I did when I was in my young adult years now remember I'm saying this to primarily 18 to 20 year olds so some things I said I hold more deeply than I did when I was a young adult. For example, I'm more deeply committed to the idea that followers of Jesus will be willing to die rather than to take another person's life. Now, I recognized then and I continue to that as I age, to some degree that's an easier commitment to make. I've had a good life. I don't know how many more years, I hope, many more, but I don't know that. But even if it should not be that many more years, I've had a good life. And to die is not as foreboding as it would have been in my 20s. I recognize that, but nevertheless, I hold that belief more deeply than I did in my 20s, even though it was important to me then. On the other hand, I said to them, there are some facets of my faith that I held more tightly in my 20s for which I now have less clarity or certainty. Life is more complex 
And some answers aren't quite as satisfactory as they might have been 40 years ago. Now, maybe I was just naive, probably was, but I was not prepared for the pushback that came from a number of the students. Some of them were confused, some were nervous, some of them actually alarmed. My attempt to promote the idea that uncertainty and questioning is a normal, perhaps even desired part of one's faith journey didn't resonate with those young adults. And as I teased it out and engaged them in conversation, the prevailing notion seemed to be that the preferred trajectory of faith for followers of Jesus is, number one, you define what you believe, number two, you drive your stakes as deeply as possible, and number three, you commit to those beliefs no matter how intellectually unsatisfactory they may be in the context of new understandings. In other words, their sense, as I heard it, was they were trying to figure out what they do believe at that stage, and their long-term goal and vision was to make sure I know what I believe and commit to it, and as I age in the faith, that will become easier. One could add to all that that placing one's faith commitments under the crucible of intellectual scrutiny is itself a dangerous thing to do. And God help us if we think that science and biblical faith can possibly be compatible. That's sort of the sense I had. Vignette number two. And this we will have an opportunity perhaps to speak about more conversationally in the second hour. Within the past year, while in the middle of our listening process at EMU, and as the recipient of many communications from all perspectives, in which the writers expressed absolute certainty, I read a book by Greg Boyd, Benefit of the Doubt, Breaking the Idolatry of Certainty. Now, there's just a little side note about Greg Boyd. Pat and I had a meal with him in St. Paul several years ago when their congregation had just gone from 3,000 down to 2,000 after he had published his book, which had been a series of sermons on the myth of a Christian nation. And they were in the process of thinking about whether they might want to join Mennonite Church USA as a whole congregation. And they were in conversations with Central Plains Mennonite Conference about joining the denomination. So we had this conversation going on, which was fascinating. And one of the things he said to me, to us, well, but one thing you Mennonites are going to have to do if you're going to be more invitational is you're going to have to quit relying on this four-part singing. <laughs> so I took a deep breath, and I'm not even sure how I responded. But the fascinating piece of that was that about a year later, he was at our school for leadership training at the seminary, and I happened to be sitting up front and, of course, our seminary chapel has wonderful acoustics, and we all went into four-part singing, and I looked over at him in tears, <clears throat> and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, you can't lose that. You cannot lose that. 
But here's the central thesis of Boyd's book, Breaking the Idolatry of Certainty. Christians have elevated the priority of certainty to the highest order in our faith pursuits. No matter what the evidence, no matter how confusing, no matter how dysfunctional, certainty trumps everything. The very idea that followers of Jesus might not have everything figured out is anathema in that framework. Questions are of the devil. Of course, any honest reading of the biblical text makes it obvious that our patron saints were imperfect. They were questioning, doubting, confused human beings. But we can't even make that as an honest observation of the biblical text because then that would undermine the Bible. So that's kind of his framework for saying this, a key point in his reflections. And he does, I need to say this, he does say that there are some things in his mind that are very certain. Not everything is up for debate, but more things are up for debate than we typically would allow for. So this is what he says. If you and I are honestly seeking the truth, we must always allow for the possibility that we are wrong. If I insist that I have no doubts whatsoever about a particular belief, then by definition I'm no longer in a search for the truth because I found it. I think it has something to do with humility. And he actually goes on to say that with a lot of power. Vignette number three. My father is approaching the end of his life. He'll be 93 in March. His body is fast deteriorating and his quality of life is rapidly declining. His mind is quite active. And in recent months he's been wrestling, so my brothers tell me I don't get to talk to him much. He still lives in Iowa. And because his hearing has largely failed, we can't really talk on the, on the phone anymore. And while he has been on email well into his 90s, even that's becoming more difficult. So we don't have much interaction, but my brothers tell me that in recent months he's been wrestling with questions of salvation. Now, he's been a faithful follower of Jesus his entire adult life. In what may be a fairly common reality for any of us who does not really know what life beyond this earth entails, his questions may not be too disturbing, but I suspect that he's had a sort of list in his mind with respect to what faithfulness means. But intellectually, he knows that his list may be different than the person who lives in the room next to him, maybe even different. And intellectually, I'm pretty sure he knows that not all of them can be equally comprehensive. Hence the feelings of, have I measured up? Is everything on my list? Have I lived my life appropriately? Have I met all the requirements? Number four, I don't know if I would call this a vignette or a data point. It's a paraphrased quote from the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, who was our speaker at the School for Leadership training two years ago. Now, I have not researched the context for this quote or the location. 
I don't know if it's fairly recent or if it's an old quote. I picked it up on a blog entry, so I cannot even vouch for its veracity. Friend of mine, longtime friend of mine, some of you may have known him, Furman Gingrich, who most recently was pastor of Blooming Glen. He and I, to the amazement of many people, I'm sure, are the only two people in our high school graduating class at Iowa Mennonite School who were ordained to ministry. Nobody predicted that. But Furman and I have remained lifelong friends. But I was roasted in a community event down in Harrisonburg a couple of years ago, so some of these old friends were invited to send in stories. And he, he sent in some stories from Pat and I in high school. He and Susan were classmates of ours. And I told him later, I said, a couple of those stories were absolutely not true. <laughs> and his response was, yes, but some stories are so good they should be true. So, this is a quote from Brueggemann. I, I think it's true. <laughs> um, it's good enough to be true. He put it this way. The problem with our divisions and debates about current issues in the church is that the real issue is not the one that's presented. The real issue is fear and anxiety. The world is going to you-know-what in a handbasket, and as we approach our later adult years, we face the fact that the world is not turning out the way we thought it would turn out. And then he goes on to say, actually, the world is going to you-know-what in a handbasket. So it's not that we are oblivious to what's happening around us, but the question is, how do we respond to that? So what is the purpose of those vignettes or observations? Let me offer to answer that with several other questions, rhetorical in nature. I've been asking this question around the church. What kind of evangelistic strategy is it when the church of North America seems to be characterized by fear and anxiety? How does fear and anxiety jibe with the overarching Heilsgeschichte of the Bible? So I remind us now of this one short phrase in the Gospel of Mark for today's lectionary reading. It's Mark 1.33. The whole town gathered at the door. So the obvious question that comes to me is, what attracted the whole town? Why did they show up? To hear a message of doom and gloom? Filled with fear and anxiety? Not likely. And it certainly doesn't fit with the larger context of the passage, nor with the ministry of Jesus and the early disciples that we read about throughout the Gospels. It seems to me that Jesus was not about the task of trying to tell everybody how awful the world is and how much we should be afraid of. In fact, the scriptures are full of hundreds of admonitions to fear not, and on the flip side, to be people of hope. Now, I know we live in a different world than they did in that early church. 
ISIS did not exist. They didn't have access to 24-7 news of catastrophes and tragedies. But they did know the terror of Herod and the far-reaching threats of the Roman Empire. And on a personal level, they certainly knew the real-life experiences of illness and disease and poverty. Just like is still true for too much of the world's population, even in our day, they could not have imagined a life expectancy of 70-plus years. There were things that they had to be afraid of. So the way of Jesus, I think, is not oblivious, nor dismissive of suffering or inexplicable realities that vex our sensibilities. Living in the way of Jesus does not shield us from the awful experience of losing friends and family members to disease or to violent deaths. And I know many of you have experienced that right here in this community with friends. Not that many months ago. Our communities are not surrounded by walls of protection, either physical or psychological. And please, hear me. I am not in favor of a prosperity gospel or some kind of gospel that simply ignores the realities around us, or that says, let's protect ourselves from the big bad world. But I do invite us to be a people of hope and healing, a people that takes seriously the hundreds of biblical admonitions to fear not. So last month, and Todd was there, maybe others of you, at our annual School for Leadership training at the seminary, we address the reality of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those in our culture who self-identify as spiritual but not religious. The growing population of those, many of them young adults, who have little interest in organized expressions of religion for whom a particular denominational connection is not a priority. And we know some things about that group of people who express those sentiments. One thing we know about them is that they crave authenticity and they resist posturing. After that chapel presentation at Heston some years back, which had unsettled a number of students, I invited a group of them to our house for further conversation, and in the end, it was a meaningful exchange of viewpoints when we engaged in respectful and honest and vulnerable conversation. That's what they wanted. So while they were initially concerned about this old guy who didn't have it all figured out, when we got into the vulnerability of actually talking it through, they began to resonate with it. Because they realized that I was a person of faith and I do care deeply about being a follower of Jesus. We also know this from research, national research, about young adults that they are drawn to faith communities that are not anti-science, anti-intellectual, or anti-gay. Now, just saying that creates all kinds of anxiety within some of us. I know that. But that's what we know from research. Doesn't solve all the issues, but we do know that about that generation in general. But that's not what they experience 
from many who call themselves Christian. It's one reason that I've begun to feel more comfortable with language like follower of Jesus than Christian in this culture. And I say that partly because I have opportunity to rub elbows and share with many people from different uh, places on the theological spectrum. One that I'm involved in right now, which is fascinating, on this very topic. I serve on the board of the Evangelical Environmental Network. It's an organization that's working to educate evangelicals on the realities of climate change. And like it or not, the political clout of conservative Christians in this country is such that if we don't convince them of climate change, then we're not going to have the capacity as a nation to make the changes that are necessary to address it. But I sit in that group and I find myself out of sync. Now, we Anabaptists often find ourselves in those environments. But we wrestle with those things. A recent letter to the editor from a self-identified Christian in our daily news record illustrated our challenge relative to that issue in particular. But it also speaks to the anti-science question. If, this is a person who wrote a letter to the editor, if the meteorologists cannot accurately predict the weather for tomorrow, then why should we take seriously their warnings of what we will experience 50 years from now? God is in charge, and all will work out. Young adults read that and they say, why would I want to be a Christian? Not all. Generalizations are dangerous. But not all letters from Christians are quite so confounding. Last week, another one wrote one entitled, Unfundamentalist Christians, quote, let us feed the hungry, house the homeless, stop the killing, and provide medicine for the sick. When we have accomplished that, we can sit around and argue about religion. So here's my final thought. Given the deep needs of our communities and so many individuals and families, indeed the needs of all of us too, it seems to me that if we practiced authentic, vulnerable, real-life ministries of healing and hope, we could well be in a situation where the whole town is showing up at our doors because we would be addressing the real needs of people where they live on the ground as opposed to having all these arguments about things that are largely irrelevant to many people. I don't know what you would do if that happened. I don't know what we would do at Parkview Mennonite Church if that happened. We would be overwhelmed. I'll leave it at that because we're going to have an opportunity to engage in further conversation during the second hour. And if there's additional questions, push back, I'm all for it. Let's engage in conversation. I'd like to close by praying for you as a congregation. We invite you many, many times to pray for us at EMU and for the other Mennonite high schools and colleges, and we're grateful for that. 
But I view this as a partnership, and I'd like to pray for you as a congregation as you engage in ministries right here in this community. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the ministries of this congregation at East Chestnut Street, for the gifts that reside within this congregation, for those who step up to provide leadership, for every single person who relates to this congregation on a regular basis, each of whom has particular gifts. And I pray that you would continue to give them a vision for what it means to care for this community as they have already done and will continue to do. I pray that you would give them the capacity and the energy to push forward on those things that are of real interest and concern and to avoid being caught in the trap of fear and anxiety that is so easy for each of us to internalize. We do recognize that there are many things in our world that are troubling. And we recognize that we are relatively protected from many of those issues and that brothers and sisters around the world face them on a daily basis. Yet we declare that as followers of Jesus, we want to be people of hope, energized by your spirit to be agents of healing and hope. And I pray that you would give this congregation the power of the Holy Spirit to engage in those ministries. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.